History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Spooktacular people, welcome to this 101st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And we are going to be in the Wild West once again on this episode. This was suggested to us by our research assistant, April Rogers Crick, and she also did the heavy lifting on the research. This is from her hometown. So thank you, April. The location is the Miller Brothers 101 Ranch, which is in Oklahoma. So I think this is our first time going to Oklahoma. I think it is. So get along, little doggy. (laughs) And it's not our last. I believe our next episode is going to be in Oklahoma as well. Another suggestion by a listener. Oh, very cool. And we are going to start tackling a lot of those suggestions that our listeners have given us. We've had them piling up, and now we're going to dive headlong into them. So if you've suggested something, it's probably coming up in the next couple of months. And if you want to suggest something, you're more than welcome to do that. Just know that it's probably going to show up sometime in April or after that. Before we get into talking about the 101 Ranch, we do want you guys to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if anybody wants to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. That's also where you can send your entries if you want to enter our design contest. Details have been in the previous two episodes. We have eight entries so far, Denise, so we're doing well there. I know, and it's going to be very, very difficult to choose, so... We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Joe. Hey, Joe. Nicole. Hi, Nicole. Elena. Hey, Elena. Zach. Hey, Zach. Rob. Hi, Rob. Another John without an H. Hello, John, without an H. We have Joyce. Hey, Joyce. Tracy. Hi, Tracy. Christine. Hey, Christine. Mandy. Hi, Mandy. And Amy. Hey, Amy. I want to thank Hawk over on Twitter for hitting us up and letting us know that he's tuning into the show. We greatly appreciate that. And he's also tuning into Victoria's Liftonese. Perfect. I let him know that I will be writing an episode of that that will be coming out in April. We'll give you more details as we get closer to that time. And also over on Twitter, Bookworm contacted me, said, Hey, I've been corresponding with you on Twitter about the Baker Hotel. I listen to your podcast and it's very good. There's just a couple facts that were misplaced. The Crazy Water Hotel that burned to the ground was rebuilt and reopened in 1927 by the original owner, Carr Collins. It is now a retirement hotel, and it's on Oak Street. The Baker is just a few blocks away on Hubbard, and it was built on the site of the White Sulphur Well. So I think, I don't remember completely because that was a while ago, but I think we probably said that the Baker Hotel was built on the remains of the Crazy Water Hotel, and that's what she wanted to correct there. It's actually down the road just a little bit. She continued, there's a fantastic website with the history of the Crazy Water, drinkcrazywater.com. <laughs> Good advice, right? I live in the next city east of Mineral Wells, and I've taken a tour of the Baker. That was back before I had a camera phone, so I didn't get any pictures. It still has spa equipment, barbells, deflated balls, and a chandelier. You can feel the grandeur and the history of the place just by walking up the steps. 
It's very dilapidated, and there were many places we couldn't go because it was too dangerous. There was a room that belonged to either the manager or the owner, not sure which, but it had inlaid tile, and it was unbelievable. There was a closet with what appeared to be just a wall that was actually a door to a hidden wet bar. Every now and then, you'll see a story of investors claiming to buy it and that they're going to restore it to its former glory. But I think the expense is too outrageous, and Mineral Wells isn't exactly the booming tourist spot it was back in the day. Anyway, thank you for doing a podcast on the old girl. I'm sure she appreciates the interest and a snapshot of her claim to fame. Thanks for sharing that with us, Amy. Denise, I wanted to let people know who are part of the Spooktacular crew that Monica Childers and Phil had gone to the New York City House of Death, and she posted some pictures up there from when they went on their tour. They're very cool. And there were some creepy ones. There was like a Virgin Mary and some pumpkins that were in this cage that supposedly used to house the air conditioner, but it looks like a little cage. And then she got the very final photo she put up. There's some kind of foggy, misty thing, and uh, I don't know. I think she might have caught something. And we're not talking a cold here. (laughs) Yeah, she did. No, I'm not talking about catching a cold. (laughs) Melissa gave us a comment over on the fan page. She put it in all caps, so she must really mean it. My favorite podcast. Thank you for making my days a little richer. Well, thank you, Melissa, for sharing that because you just made our life a little bit richer by doing that. Yes, thank you, Melissa. And April gave us a message over on the fan page as well. I love your podcast. I would recommend it to anyone. I listen to your podcast and Jim Harold's Campfire podcast. She does this while she's making her reborn baby dolls at home. I wonder what those are. I don't know. Maybe she could share some of that on the page, too. I'm not a huge history buff, but I love real ghost stories and factual haunted locations every trip I take. I try to find a book about the local lore and legends, especially about ghosts. The last trip we took to visit family, we ended up in historic Pensacola, Florida, and I got a book there. Thanks for your podcast. Yes, you are chatty, and I know a lot of people do not like that, but it's your style. I think it's a nice break from just formal documentary types of podcasts. I especially like the This Day in History part of your podcast, too. And then uh, she sent us some designs for the contest. So thank you for those, April. All right, Denise, are you ready to put on your boots once again? We're going out to the 101 Ranch. It's going to get deep. Well, then I guess we definitely need our boots for that. Yes, we do. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. Elmer McCurdy was a bandit. He made a huge mistake in his criminal career when he decided that his next robbery would be of a passenger train in 1911. For some reason, he thought the passenger train was going to be loaded with thousands of dollars. He forced the train to stop and boarded it. Despite his efforts, he only made off with $46. Lawmen went after him and finally caught him. They shot him dead. McCurdy's body was taken to the local undertaker, and he was embalmed with an arsenic preparation. Time passed, and no one came to claim McCurdy's body, so the undertaker sold the body to a traveling sideshow to serve as an exhibit. Over the course of 60 years, 
McCurdy's body traded hands from sideshows to haunted houses to wax museums. When that kind of time passes and the number of previous owners grows, the fact that the prop is actually the embalmed corpse of a man becomes forgotten. McCurdy finally ended up at an amusement park funhouse. The TV show Six Million Dollar Man decided to use the funhouse as a filming location in 1976. People were fooling around and poor Elmer McCurdy's finger broke off and everyone quickly realized that this stuffed prop was actually the body of a human. The cops were called and the Los Angeles coroner was able to figure out that the body belonged to McCurdy. He was then buried at Boot Hill Cemetery in Dodge City, 66 years after he was shot to death. An embalmed human corpse being mistaken as a stuffed prop? certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. This Day in History On this day, January 31st, in 1961, Ham the Chimp was launched into space from the Cape Canaveral Space Center. During the Soviet-U.S. space race, it was decided that it would be best to test the effects of space travel on animals before using humans. An intelligent animal would be needed, one that could be trained to push buttons. The American test facility had 40 chimpanzees available and from that roster, eight were chosen to go through rigorous training. Once the training was done, there was no doubt that Ham was the best candidate. His journey to space was a 17-minute-long suborbital flight in which he reached a speed of 5,857 miles per hour, reaching the altitude of 157 miles above the Earth, and Ham experienced six minutes of weightlessness. Blue lights were used to indicate to Ham when he needed to push certain buttons, and he performed perfectly. Everything went fine until Ham was returning to Earth. His return capsule suffered loss of atmosphere. If not for his special spacesuit, he would have died. Because of this success, the first man was launched into space on May 5, 1961. That man was Alan Shepard. Ham the Chimp became an instant celebrity after his successful space mission. He appeared in several TV shows and in documentary films. He retired to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., where he lived for 17 years until his death on January 19, 1983. The History Goes Bump Podcast. The Miller Brothers 101 Ranch was a 110,000-acre cattle ranch in the Indian Territory of Oklahoma before statehood. It is located near Ponca City in the northern part of Oklahoma. Colonel George W. Miller was a larger-than-life man who founded the fabulous 101 Ranch in 1893. The 101 Ranch was the birthplace of the 101 Ranch Wild West Show and one of the early focal points of the oil rush in northeastern Oklahoma. It was the largest diversified farm and ranch in America in its day and is now a National Historic Landmark. Today, very little is left of the ranch, but it would seem that several spirits still call the property home. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the 101 Ranch. And that Ponca City, Denise, is named for the Native American tribe that used to live in the area. 
Oh, very cool. So that's where they get the name from. It's also the language that they spoke. On September 16th, 1893, Colonel George W. Miller, along with his wife Molly, three sons, Joseph, Zach, and George Jr., and daughter Alma, staked their claim in the Cherokee Strip. Miller had been born in Lincoln County, Kentucky in 1842. He was a veteran of the Confederate Army. After the Civil War ended, the colonel set his sights on California, but he never got there. He stopped in Bliss, Oklahoma, where he would make his claim. And Bliss, Oklahoma actually doesn't even exist anymore. Oh, that's too bad. I would love to live in somewhere. Well, I wouldn't want to live in Oklahoma, but Bliss. You say, I live in Bliss. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> <laughs> this claim was in the rich bottomland of the Salt Fork of the Arkansas River, some six miles southwest of what is modern-day Ponca City, Oklahoma. Here, Colonel Miller relocated his growing cattle operation. This would be his third ranch effort within the northern area of Indian Territory, and it's going to be very, very successful. In the spring of 1895, Colonel Miller began to plow 2,000 acres of virgin prairie. His plan was to plant the land in order to winter Texas cattle. By that fall, several thousand additional acres of wheat was sown and produced 35 bushels an acre. Seeking to expand his cattle and agricultural interests following the opening of the Cherokee Strip by land run, he and his sons began buying additional property along with lease agreement from the Ponca Indian tribe. The 101 Ranch expanded to some 75,000 acres of pasture and farmland. With hard work and good fortune, the ranch grew to an estimated 110,000 acres. In January 1903, Colonel Miller passed away from complications of pneumonia, and the ranch was taken over by his three sons, Joe, George Jr., and Zach. Molly and Joe took the colonel back home to Kentucky to be buried. Upon returning home, the family continued with plans to build a new home. The new house, which was a large white frame house characteristic of prosperous families of the day, was finished by Christmas of 1903. It became known as the White House. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Very interesting, but not so creative. After taking over the daily business and running of the 101 Ranch, the Miller brothers built a herd of 25,000 Longhorn and developed experimental and highly successful agricultural applications. Led by Joe Miller, the brothers additionally developed a large herd of Holsteins, Shorthorn, and Hertford dairy cattle, along with Durick Jersey hogs. Their swine production alone resulted in their ability to ship 10,000 hogs a year to market. They also planted large orchards. 10,000 pigs a year? That's a lot of bacon. Yes, it is. Ooh, I love bacon. I shouldn't have said that. No, she reminds me of that commercial. It's like, bacon, 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 bacon. <laughs> In 1905, the National Editorial Association of St. Louis made plans to hold its annual newspaper editor's convention in Guthrie, Oklahoma. Joe Miller scheduled an entertainment gala for the influential visitors at the 101 Ranch. Drawing inspiration from a quickly passing period of America's Old West, the Miller brothers put on an extravaganza they promoted as a roundup. Souvenir programs offered during the event additionally billed the Oklahoma Gala as a cowboy reunion, Indian celebration, Buffalo Chase, and Historical Exhibition. At least 200 local cowboys, ranch hands, and Indians took part in the show, and arrangements were made to have imprisoned frontier warrior Geronimo brought to the ranch under military guard from Fort Sill. With assistance, the aging warrior killed a buffalo in the arena from a motor car, signed autographs, and sold souvenirs. 
Can you believe that, Denise? Here's Geronimo. He's a celebrity. They bring him out and he's signing autographs and all kinds of stuff. Just amazing. It is. I also want to point out, yes, they were killing a live buffalo as part of the show. The Millers also advertised in area newspapers. They would offer a $1,000 prize to anyone, get this, who would submit to being scalped by Geronimo. They're going to offer them a prize like it'll do a lot of good. Did they understand what scalping was? Yeah, I mean, scalping's not like giving you a real close haircut or shave. It's like taking the skin off of your skull, too, kind of thing. Yeah, I. Uh, they didn't have any offers. <laughs> uh, I would think not. The event took place on June 11th, 1905, and more than 65,000 people were in attendance. Overflow crowds easily filled a huge grandstand built for the event. Performing ranch-honed skills, cowboys and cowgirls paraded about the huge grandstand that was located on the south side of the Salt Fork River. Vividly costumed Ponca, Atoi, Ka, Missouri, Tonkawa, Pawnee, and Osage Indians took part along with marching bands, soldiers, and of course, Geronimo. And I'm just going to say, if I pronounce any of those wrong, I do apologize to those tribes. Along with Geronimo's mock buffalo hunt, there was trick riding, bucking horses, and a performance by the bulldogger from Texas, Bill Pickett. Pickett was of African-American and Cherokee descent and was the son of a former slave. Pickett invented the technique known as bulldogging. This involves grabbing cattle by their horns and wrestling them to the ground. It can be quite dangerous. Pickett was famous for this technique and his performance in numerous Wild West shows and he eventually even acted in movies. He died in 1932 when a bronco kicked him in the head. The gala ended that evening with an unannounced frontier-style wagon train attack by Indian performers. I just think the story of Bill Pickett is fascinating. It kind of shows you that back in that time that they were a little bit more open. Once slavery was done away with, you didn't have all the segregation and everything coming in quite yet, especially in the Old West. I think they were like, hey, if you want to work, you go ahead and work, especially if it was like this show stuff. And I'd never known that this technique of bulldogging, which you can still see in rodeos to this day, was started by an African-American Cherokee gentleman. I uh, thought that's very cool. Absolutely. Very, very cool. This incredible performance garnered national attention for the 101 Ranch and brought them into the venue of Western Entertainment. The show was so successful, Joe Miller and his brothers formed the 101 Ranch Wild West Show, and it began to tour the United States in 1907. Joe was a highly skilled equestrian. By 1914, the 101 Ranch Wild West Show began touring internationally. They performed in England, the European continent, and South America. Several of the performers who joined the brothers in the show were Bill Pickett, Lillian Smith, who was a trick shooter and rival to Annie Oakley. Hey, another girl with a gun. I know. Annie Oakley wasn't the only one out there. B. Ho Gray, who was a trick roper and highly skilled with the Australian black snake whip, which makes me think of Indiana Jones. Tom Mix, who was Hollywood's first mega Western star. And he starred mainly in silent films. I think Tom made over 200 films and only eight or nine of those were talkies, which is what they called audio movies at the time. Wow. So a lot of silent films for him. Mexican Joe, who was an expert writer and roper, and for whom Jim Reeves sang the song Mexican Joe. And the master Wild West showman himself, Buffalo Bill Cody. He was much older at this time, 
but he was a part of the show as well. Isn't that amazing? That is because Buffalo Bill Cody had his own Wild West show. Exactly. During World War One, the 101 Ranch Wild West show took a hiatus from 1916 to 1924. In 1925, the Miller Brothers entertained the King and Queen of England, along with an estimated 700,000 spectators during 33 performances. That's just incredible. I had no idea they took these shows across the pond. No well, idea. Well, and then just the fact that this started from a little little place in Oklahoma. It's not like it started from the seat of our national government or some big city. It was just in little Oklahoma, so that's cool. The 101 Ranch itself was much more than just cattle and crops. It was a community of industry unseen by anyone in Indian Territory before this time. In 1908, a lawyer and oilman from Pennsylvania by the name of Ernest Whitworth Marland showed up at the 101 Ranch looking for oil. Marland would eventually become a governor of Oklahoma. Marlin walked and studied the ranch property and the surrounding vicinity that included outcroppings of rocks and geologic formations and rolling prairie. At that time, the 101 Ranch included about 100,000 acres. Only about 10,000 of the acres were owned outright by the Miller Brothers. The remainder of the lands were held under lease from the Ponca Indians. Mr. Marlin was convinced that the Ponca Indian Cemetery was a distinct oil formation. Uh Oh, not a very smart man, this Mr. Marlin. Uh, apparently he didn't know about those burial lands and don't mess with them, okay? Plus, just those are sacred lands. I mean, no matter who's buried where, you know. He told George Miller he would agree to drill a test well if he would give him a lease on the 101 ranch lands and help him obtain the necessary leases from the Ponca Indians. It took a large amount of time to convince the tribe members to give them a lease on the cemetery and on the surrounding land. And we're actually shocked they did with how the Native Americans revered their dead and burial lands. I can't believe they actually said, okay, sure, go ahead and drill. I wonder if it was like not exactly clear to them what they were asking them. I often wonder that because this was done many times when the land was taken from Native people, whether it was here in America, or I know this definitely happened a lot uh, down in Australia and such, where they would tell the people, hey, this is the land that you're going to have, and they couldn't read the contract, so sure, okay, they said it says this, and they would sign it. I also wonder if maybe there was the promise of a whole bunch of money if they struck oil. Who knows? Yeah. In February 1909, the first location was staked. The lease included 10,000 acres on the 101 Ranch and 4,800 acres from the Ponca Indians. The lease on the cemetery was sold to George Miller, provided he would not drill within the area where they were burying their dead. So they leased out the cemetery, but I guess wherever specific bodies were, he wasn't allowed to drill, I guess. A half interest was given to Marlin on condition he would do the drilling himself. The first well drilled near the headquarters of the 101 Ranch was a non-producer. About five miles from the first, the second well was drilled. At a depth of 500 feet, an extraordinarily large flow of gas was struck in the spring of 1910. An old Ponga Indian named Running After Arrows witnessed the bringing in of the first gas well on the 101 Ranch. He had never seen or heard such a thing before. George Miller, who was present, explained to him in the Ponca language what a gas well was, but Running After Arrows could not understand the roaring gas coming from the interior of the earth. He considered it to be an evil omen and a sign of coming destruction. Uh, no good, no good, he grunted. Beautiful country, all die now. Cattle die, ponies die. No good, no good. 
beautiful country soon all gone. No one knew that the Indian's prophecy would soon come true. The plains became spotted with oil derricks and herds of cattle gradually gave way to huge tank farms. The production of raw materials was still very important to the 101 Ranch, and they continued to market them. The ranch produced virtually every kind of raw product, wheat and corn, cattle and horses, hogs and chickens, alfalfa and kafir, fruit and vegetables, buffalo and elephants, camels and longhorns, ostriches and peacocks, work mules and cow ponies, the bazaar, and the common. Yes, you heard that right. This ranch had elephants, peacocks, and ostriches. And it had elephants? That that is that's really bizarre to me, even more so than some of the other things. Well you think they had all this land and they were putting on these shows and such, so I suppose I know, but elephants are like not even indigenous to North America. I know. So I was wondering if any of our listeners out there have ever eaten ostrich. We actually got that opportunity and no, it's not like chicken, even though an ostrich is a bird. It's actually a red meat, and I thought it was very delicious. Did you like it, Denise? I tried a little bit. I didn't try a whole lot because at that time I was just coming out of being a vegetarian. So, Well, and you're not real big into gamey meat anyway, so I don't know that you would have enjoyed it that much. The ranch had its own meat packing plant where they employed all the modern processes of slaughtering, packing, and distributing meat products. It had a daily capacity to process 100 hogs and 50 cattle. That's a lot, 150 animals in a day. It provided huge cold storage and cooling rooms for the proper handling of meats. The surplus hogs and cattle were slaughtered in the plant, and the sugar-cured hams and home-cured meats were sold in large quantities. The meat products were sold and delivered by refrigerated trucks within a 100-mile radius of the ranch. So this was pretty ahead of its time back then, making sure they had everything refrigerated and stuff. Soon after starting the packing plant, a large amount of raw hides accumulated. The price offered for them by the tanners seemed to be extremely low compared with the price of finished hides. So the Miller brothers built a large tannery close to the packing house. Soon after the tannery was built, a large cyclone swept it away, leaving only the foundation. A second tannery was built and operated for only a short time when it too was destroyed, this time by fire. A third tannery was built, but the cost of the tanned hides had dropped from 50 cents a pound to 3 cents a pound. The Miller brothers, ever resourceful, pivoted and began making harnesses and saddles. I guess third time was the charm for them there with that tannery. (laughs) I would start thinking, maybe we're not supposed to be tanning stuff. Exactly, or I'd be thinking back to the prophecy of that, um, what was his name, running after arrows. The 101 Ranch had its own dairy as well. A modern dairy barn and creamery were built and housed 500 registered Holstein cows and took care of the dairy products. In connection with the dairy, there was a modern-day ice cream plant. I'm there. Cold storage and cooling rooms for the proper handling of the dairy products. The dairy was capable of taking care of milk from 500 cows. The milk was made into butter, ice cream, and cottage cheese. The dairy products were sold and delivered by refrigerated trucks for miles around the ranch, including merchants in the towns of Marland and Ponca City. The dairy also had a large shipping trade in butter, ice cream, and cheese. This place has everything, and we're just going to continue to name off things it did. Well, they were very smart, though. They kept everything like anything that had to do rather than outsourcing it to somebody else and having a middleman. They just took care of everything. Exactly. 
The Miller brothers were among the first to produce moving pictures. Performances in roping, trick riding, bronc riding, and bulldogging for movies were staged on the 101 Ranch rodeo grounds. Finding it difficult to feed the hundreds of actors at lunchtime while out on location, Will Brooks, a cousin of the Miller brothers, had the idea to provide a sack lunch for everyone. The sack lunches consisted of sandwiches, cakes, and fruit. Each sack would contain the same kind and amount of food. At lunchtime, the actors and crew would line up and march by, each taking a sack. Water, coffee, and milk were available for those who might want a different drink. All the food was produced on the ranch. So I guess this is the first craft table. <laughs> you know, they always have the craft table whenever they're making movies where everybody goes to get the catering and stuff. Okay, and probably it was the first time that they were doing sack lunches, which, I mean, I still take to this day to work. True. The 101 Ranch operated a general store. It was the Mercantile Center in northern Oklahoma for a number of years. Originally started as a supply place for their large number of employees, the Millers eventually expanded until the store became a supply center for 50 miles around. It was a combined department store, which also carried ranch products of all kinds, and Indian store operating somewhat as an old-time trading post. The 101 Ranch Cafe evolved from the old Ranch Chuck House to a modern-day restaurant. The cafe was furnished, pleasingly designed, and tastefully decorated. The cafe chefs prepared delicious meals, and every piece of food, with the exception of olives, sugar, and coffee, was produced on the ranch. Ooh, I bet you that was a fantastic Mm. place to eat. Talk about fresh. A special building was erected and equipped for the cider and canning industry. Approximately 200 barrels of cider were manufactured each fall. All of the cider was pasteurized, thus keeping it sweet and making it possible to market at any time. Several thousand pounds of apple butter and jelly were manufactured annually as well. A modern laundry was operated by the Miller Brothers. It was equipped with modern machinery and did all of the laundry work of the ranch, including that for its employees. In addition, it served the needs of the surrounding county. The ranch had its own machine, blacksmith, woodwork, and repair shop. The shop was equipped with all the power machinery and tools needed in this line of work. Two blacksmiths were kept busy shoeing horses and repairing farm machinery. In addition to the ranch work, the shop served the needs of the farmers of the surrounding community. There was an ice plant with a capacity of 10 tons daily maintained on the ranch. The plant provided ice for the ranch and its employees, as well as the farmers of the community. Three large cold storage plants were provided for the proper handling of the meats and perishable products of the ranch. The ranch had its own electric light plant, system of waterworks, and general power plant. You know, it just hit me. This ranch was kind of like an old-time precursor to the modern-day mall. Basically, Like one of those strip malls where you can go and kind of do everything. Everything. One of the most interesting industries was the novelty factory. All kinds of Indian rugs, beaded belts, and clothing, drums, bow and arrow, silver jewelry, and much more were manufactured in the factory by Indians employed by the Miller Brothers. A large assortment of souvenir leather goods such as cowboy belts, boys' chaps, and vests were also manufactured and sold. But just as Running with Arrows predicted years back, all was soon to come crashing down. By 1927, the Miller brothers realized that they were slowly losing everything. The 101 Ranch and the Wild West Show were plagued with mortgages, crop failures, low prices for stock, and bad seasons for the show. Throughout the 1927 tour, the Wild West Show encountered foul weather, fierce competition, rising expenses, 
and injuries to personnel and spectators, which often ended in costly litigation. The afternoon of October 21, 1927, Joe Miller, who was only 57 years old, was found dead on the floor of his garage. Beside him was his car, which was idling and the car door was open. A pocket knife and several screws were on the running board. The attending physicians and others called to the scene surmised that Joe had been tinkering with the car engine and had been overcome by carbon monoxide fumes. It was decided that Joe would want the show to go on. So with Zach Miller and his nephews running the show, the 101 Ranch Wild West show launched another six-month tour in April 1928. On the home front, George Miller tried to manage the ranch and pay off mounting debts due to crop losses, a severe decline in oil and gas royalties, and ironically, the heavy financial drain of the roadshow. In late January of 1929, George spent a week in Texas looking over new oil properties and inspecting a wildcat well being drilled southeast of Big Spring. He returned to Oklahoma, and on the evening of February 1st, he met a few cronies at Ponca City's Arcade Hotel for an evening of cards and conversation. In the wee hours of the morning of February 2nd, after playing numerous games of pitch and having several rounds of drinks, George left. During the night, a combination of sleet and snow had begun to fall, and city streets were slick and dangerous. His friends tried to convince him to stay, but always a gambler, he bet his pals that even with the foul weather and bad roads, he could be at the ranch in record time. Fifteen minutes after his big Lincoln Roadster roared off into the dark, George Miller, who was just 47 years old, was killed. He died instantly at about 2 a.m. on Highway 77, southwest of Ponca City. His car apparently had skidded and overturned on an icy curve. When he was found, his body was pinned beneath the front wheel and his head was crushed. Faced with numerous problems and on his own now, Zach Miller, who was 50 years old at the time of George's death, fought on. Even with all the financial issues, he managed to produce the Wild West Roadshow for three more years. By the end of 1930, his creditors closed in on Zach and the 101 Ranch suffered a net loss of more than $300,000. He stubbornly took the show on the road one more time. That's a lot to be in debt, $300,000. Especially back then. Especially back then. He tried and failed to sell the show. They probably saw how bad it was financially and were like, no way. On March 24th, 1932, everything on the ranch, save for the White House and its contents, went on the auction block. Zach, who called the public auction legal robbery, was arrested and briefly detained for chasing lawyers with his shotgun. Who could blame him? You're taking all of his stuff. <laughs> no kidding. And they were used to having everything right there. I know. I mean, it's got to be so depressing because all they've been watching is this incredible growth. And it's just, you know, it always comes down to mismanagement on this stuff. After posting bond, he returned home and to his bed, suffering from what doctors diagnosed as a nervous breakdown. On April 2nd, he received more bad news. Bill Pickett, the faithful bulldogger, had died in Ponca City Hospital two weeks after having been kicked in the head while taming an unbroken chestnut gelding at the 101 Ranch. Pickett was loyal to the Millers in the 101 Ranch to the end, so he was buried near the stone Monument to White Eagle that was south of the ranch headquarters. Others buried on that windswept hill along with Pickett were James E. Curbstone Kirby Smedley, an ox team trainer for the Miller Show, Henry Clay, a black cowboy who taught Will Rogers some rope tricks, Gladys Hamilton, the nine-year-old daughter of one of the ranch's hired hands, and Jim Gates, a farm laborer who had been shot to death at a dance. 
Pickett's favorite bulldogging horse, Spradley, was said to have been buried nearby, too. Throughout the years, Zach Miller had many ups and downs. On January 3, 1952, Zach Miller closed his eyes for the final time at the age of 73. He died in Texas where so many years before his father had swapped hog meat for steers to start the Miller kingdom. Zach was brought home to Oklahoma, back to the land he loved. He was laid to rest close to the banks of the Salt Fork, deep in the earth of Cowboy Hill. All these years later, there is hardly any physical trace of the 101 Ranch remaining. The land was divided up, and eventually all traces of the buildings were either lost or dilapidated. So Cowboy Hill is where they have buried everybody there on the ranch. It's so sad that this huge booming, like we said, it was everything was there and nothing. Nothing's left of it, indeed. In 1987, a mysterious fire destroyed the historic 101 Ranch Store, which for many years had served as the home of Zach Jr. and his mother, Marguerite, who took her own life there with a revolver in 1963. So her husband died in 1952, and then 11 years later, she takes her own life. Poor kid. There are numerous stories of haunting activities on the 101 Ranch, and some paranormal groups have had their own experiences and caught a few EVPs that are rather scary to listen to. Numerous witnesses say melancholy cowboy melodies and residual phantom voices can be heard around the site. A group called the Society of the Haunted has been to the 101 Ranch to investigate several times. Kathy Nance, their case manager, details a time when they were in the basement of the White House, which was the only building remaining on the property. They received positive EMF meter readings, which could not be debunked by checking electrical connections, because there is no working electrical wiring on the ranch now. After a thunderstorm passed, they were able to make EMF contact with what they believed was an entity that haunts the basement of the White House. It is said that on many occasions, this unknown entity has answered a few questions. This is a picky specter, though. Ask too many questions or get too pushy, and it leaves. Kathy said that after a particularly intense question session, The entity told them to leave audibly, and this was heard by all members of the group. The same group has claimed to hear drum beats coming from down by the river. What I find interesting is that they really started getting activity after the thunderstorm passed. And I've heard this several times whenever you're listening to paranormal shows and such, that they'll say if there is electrical activity going on in the air, it seems to amp up the ghostly activity or EMF readings and such, which, of course, you could say, well, I wonder if there's something scientifically going on, that there's extra ions or something in the air, and that's what's causing people to feel a weird feeling or for meters to start going off. Or is it that the electricity in the thunderstorm is something that the spirits can feed off of and it's helping them to be more interactive and such? That would make sense to me, um, just given that they think that that's why batteries drain and stuff, because entities need that that electrical energy to do things. So a thunderstorm would probably be... Seems like it would be a lot of electricity. I've had a thunderbolt hit pretty close to where I was walking, and it about knocked me on my butt. The group Oklahoma Ghost Patrol claims to have had camera trouble everywhere on the property and Cowboy Hill. The only place where their equipment has worked properly is in the basement of the White House. Another local paranormal investigator claims to have been touched in the basement ruins. Third World Paranormal reported, quote, Our team had a handful of things happen to them while on the property. We experienced shadow figures, disembodied voices, 
voices captured on the ghost box, strange noises, bangings that were coming from the metal closet in the basement area, smells, anomalies and pictures, K2 activity, and being touched. Tommy made the spirit of Zach Miller upset by accidentally calling him Joe. Hildy kept feeling that there was someone on top of the building looking at us. One of the quirks always experienced at Cowboy Hill for sensitive people is when they touch Zach's headstone, it feels like a surge of static electricity, end quote. Our research assistant who did the research on this and suggested this location grew up in Ponca City. And before she moved away 20 years ago, she had her own experience at the 101 Ranch Ruins. She's not sure if the experience was paranormal in nature or not, so we'll leave that for all of you to decide. One early evening, as she was driving near the 101 Ranch, she decided to stop and check out the historical site. She could hear what sounded like hooves beating across the prairie, and she could hear what sounded like soft songs on the winds, along with the whoops and hollers of invisible cowboys. She felt as though she could sense the many different souls that had passed through the lands. Was it all in her head? Whether it was her imagination or a real supernatural experience, she knows that there's no way a person can stand on the grounds of the 101 Ranch and not be overcome with the possibility of what once was there and all the emotions enveloped in the land. Well, you know, those beating hooves across the prairie definitely could be something residual. Absolutely. And even the sounds of whether it's, you know, tribal singing or cowboys whooping and hollering. Again, something else that could have been captured in the land and the residual activity, whatever. All that scientific stuff we don't understand. The 101 Ranch seems to have been a city unto itself. It was a marvel in the production of nearly everything the Great Plains were known for, from dairy to cattle raising, farming, oil driving, and much more. Have the spirits of disturbed Native Americans risen to haunt the land? Are the former residents of the 101 Ranch still living here? Is the Miller Brothers 101 Ranch haunted? That is for you to decide. And Denise, one of the Spooktacular crew members had posted, I believe it was Monica, had posted this list that was the top, like the number one haunted place in each state. Very cool list. It was a very cool list. I'm definitely going to hold on to that. What was interesting is for our state of Florida and then our previous state in Colorado, the most haunted location in both of those, we've never even heard of them, much less that they're the most haunted place. So we're definitely going to have to check those out because I'm like, well, actually, we had heard of the one in Colorado, but we had no idea that it was haunted. Right, exactly. And you're thinking they have the Stanley Hotel, the Molly Brown House, the whole Brown area. Palace. Well, mean, the whole area around Cheeseman Park mm-hmm. where the Changeling, which was the movie, was about a spirit. So that was loosely based off of a spirit in a haunting near Cheeseman Park in one of the houses. So, yeah. Well, on our next show, we are doing the Skirvin Hotel, which was suggested to us by our listener, Samantha Wilson. And apparently this made the list as number one in Oklahoma. So it's going to be interesting to see what this has got in store for us. Absolutely. All right. And let's share some reviews before we close out the show. We'll start out with the lowest one first and work our way up. We did get a three star from TAR 2033, dedicated but close minded. Denise and Diane are dedicated to the research and time which goes into such a podcast. I'm an extreme skeptic about the supernatural, but find myself drawn in as the ladies cover spooky history and speculate on the reaction of the public to these horrific events. So if you believe the supernatural is a bunch of BS, don't write off this podcast. However, the hosts occasionally chit-chat and express opinions which are somewhat distasteful, like their personal views on race, black history, millennials, etc., which hint at prejudice. I found myself suffering from secondhand cringe over the xenophobic comments on more than a few occasions. Despite this, I'd still recommend the podcast to anyone who likes history, true crime, supernatural happenings, or just things that are simply spooky. 
Okay, well, thank you for that review. Well, Denise, I have to say, when it comes to the millennials, you're 51, I'm 44. So basically, we're like, get off our lawn. (laughs) (laughs) That would be you, Diane. (laughs) Actually, I I don't know how we could be considered to be prejudiced towards millennials. How many times has Freya Porter been on our show? And we've let her carry the research and such. So I, we have respect for a lot of millennials out there. However, there are a lot of millennials I don't have a lot of respect for. But and then again, there's a lot of people. What we don't have respect for is the entitled attitude that exactly. can come. Exactly. That is very strong in the upcoming generation, not exactly. from all of them, but whether it's an old person, a young person, a race, a group, whatever, if you feel like you're entitled just because that's what we don't have room for. And that, but that's not a prejudice. It's all people. And that includes the gay community too. I do think it's kind of funny that two gay chicks could be so prejudiced, but <laughs> uh, we don't like people using that as an excuse either or trying right. to get special rights or something of that nature. So, so we're sorry that. We offended you. I'm sorry we came across that way, but um, I will admit I am not politically correct. Never have been, never will be. So This is true. Also, we have a four-star review from Mayhem 68, Paranormal Happens in Places of Historical Value. Cool podcast that gives you paranormal background in places that have historical value. The hosts interact well with each other, plus the subject matter is interesting and the cast is entertaining. Give Diane and Denise a shot. It's a really great show. Well, thank you, Mayhem. We appreciate that. And I don't know how to say this. Oh, Onage. Lots of fun. Five stars. I love that you ladies do your own research and work so hard on it to get to the truth. Plus, you did the Milton Schoolhouse in my hometown of Alton. And now it houses my favorite coffee shop. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you for that. And we may be having a cup of coffee at that coffee house in the very near future. Yeah, we're talking about going up to a paranormal conference up in actually Alton. Alton. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, what I was going to yeah. say. Libby Cat 07, Enjoyment, 5 Star. I discovered HGB by accident. I'll admit to not even paying attention to podcasts, but another site came highly recommended. Not remembering the name of it, I found this page and started listening. I'm hooked. Maybe once I catch up, I'll go try and find the other site. (laughs) Well, thank you to that other site, whoever recommended this. (laughs) Absolutely. I do know that we are out on like Ninth Story and Big Seance, so maybe it was something like that. Yuki Kitty. Different and fun, five stars. I have a whole host of horror and paranormal podcasts that I listen to from No Sleep and Welcome to Night Vale. I listen to those too. As horror and paranormal fiction, the Faculty of Horror and Lore or Astonishing Legends, which are more academic. If you want such podcasts, this is not one of them. What makes this podcast so special is the fun banter between the two hosts. Yes, the haunted history is cool to learn about, and now I so want to visit the places mentioned. But what is so compelling is the fun, sometimes tangential talk. I'm enjoying the show even more as the audio quality gets better. Keep it up, ladies, because you've earned my rare subscription. Well, thank you, Yuki Kitty. And I do hope that our audio quality is coming across much better on this podcast. I have been studying, looking over videos, doing everything humanly possible to try to get the audio quality as best as we can without having to spend money on a bunch of expensive equipment. And I think I found our happy place. Nobody touch anything. That is Diane's happy place. Mine still happens to be at the Magic Kingdom. (laughs) Well, we want to thank everybody for joining us for this podcast. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank Lori Kirchmeyer for her one-time donation and welcome Walter Mose as a new executive producer. And I hope I said that last name right. If I didn't, let me know. Thank you. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, 
one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Ninth Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bumble, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.